0: The following is a message from Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or Westminster Seminary, visit us online at westcal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. Good morning. It's great to be with you all here be back on campus. It wasn't too long ago that I was here studying and training for pastoral ministry. And so it's great to be back here and, and see and hear what, what God is doing here on this campus. Uh, hands down, my time at Westminster represents three of the most formative years of my life thus far. Uh, the Lord used this school in so many ways to, to grow me and, and challenge me. And it's my hope and prayer that your experience here uh, would be wonderfully uh, enriching and rewarding as well. Uh, for it's a great school, and uh, I'm glad to be with you this morning. And just so you know, they didn't pay me too much to say that. Um, turning your Bibles, if you would, to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, we're going to be looking at verses 22 and following. Mark's Gospel can roughly be divided into two main parts. Chapters 1 through 8 deal with Jesus the man, and the rest of the book deals with Jesus and his mission. And those are kind of two main hooks that you can hang your hat on as you look at Mark's Gospel. Within those two sections, there's a lot going on, of course. But those are the two main sections, and this morning in Mark chapter 8, we come to the hinge between those two main sections. And so let us read now God's word with understanding. Mark chapter 8, verses 22 and following. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again and he opened his eyes his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly and he sent to him and he sent him to his home saying do not even enter the village and Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi and on the way he asked his disciples who do people say that I am and they told him So far, the reading of God's word. I want you to imagine this morning that you have to make a trip to the eye doctor to get your eyes checked out. And for your eye appointment, the eye doctor does the usual thing of having you stand about 8 to 10 feet away from an eye chart. And he asks you to read what's on the eye chart. And you look at that chart and confess to the eye doctor that everything on the chart is blurry. Uh, Coming from seminary, that might actually be a reality for some of you as you go get your eyes checked out. Well, then the eye doctor goes to the next step, and he gets out his lens machine. I'm sure some of you are familiar with those big lens machines. And he puts that up to your eyes, and he begins flipping through different lenses to try to help you see the letters on the chart. So he asks you, what's clearer, lens one or lens two? What's clearer, lens three or lens four? And so on. But I want you to imagine that he flips through all those lenses, and none of the lenses help you see the chart much better. It's all still blurry to you. And so you tell the doctor you still can't see clearly. Well, this eye doctor would have to conclude that in some sense you are blind. For every lens that he tried to give you was not helping you see clearly. There's a blindness there that needs to be addressed. Well, one of the ways to understand what is going on in Mark's gospel is that Mark is serving as a kind of eye doctor. He's serving as a kind of optometrist, if you will. Not to deal with our physical eyes, of course, but with our spiritual eyes. Trying to get the readers of the gospel that back then and the readers of his gospel here today to see Jesus clearly. And in spite of all the correct lenses through which Mark has, uh, uh, despite all the correct lenses that Mark has given to his disciples thus far, we read in our text this morning that the disciples still remained blind. And so this idea of seeing Jesus clearly for who he is and what he came to do is what really ties together these several texts that are before us this morning. There is a move from partial to full sight. That we are going to look at. And so first we get this healing of a blind man at Bethsaida. And it's very strange, isn't it? It really strikes us as as odd at first. Because we read it and it seems like Jesus had some kind of difficulty healing this man. When you first read it, you can kind of scratch your head and go, okay, what's going on here? Did the chief physician get the prescription wrong? Or something like that. What's going on with this blind man and his seeing of trees? And how does this fit in with our perception of Jesus? Well, what we can definitely say is that after Jesus spit on this blind man's eyes and laid his hands on him, the healing was still incomplete. The blind man responds to Jesus' healing touch with the words, I see men, but they look like trees walking. And so there was healing. After all, the man was blind. But the healing wasn't complete. The blind man sees, but he doesn't see correctly. So then Jesus lays his hands on this man a second time. And everything was then cleared up. And this man saw clearly. And this was all before LASIK's eye surgery. This is a miracle. But it is a curious one. Why did, this happen, why did this happen in two stages? Why was this a gradual healing? Why would Mark include this in his gospel Well, I submit to you that this story is like a visible parable of sorts. So often in Mark's gospel, the miracles given to us aren't just mere miracles to show us that Jesus was God because he had divine power. Indeed, the miracles do show us that. They're not less than that, but they're much more than that. And here, this is a visible parable in that the disciples... Are with Jesus and Jesus is wanting to show his disciples and show us here this morning that we can be those Who have been given sight yet still have more to see Because it is not the case that Jesus could not have healed this man on the first go around Rather Jesus is wanting to teach and instill God's truth in conducting this miracle in this way And what supports this idea Is the rest of the passages before us that follow this healing Notice right after this two-stage healing, Jesus asks the disciples about his identity. Who do you say that I am? And Peter answers that question correctly. And then notice right after that, Jesus teaches that he must suffer and be put to death and be raised on the third day, which then provokes Peter to rebuke Jesus, which is then met with an even stronger rebuke by Jesus calling Peter Satan. It is quite a turnaround in such a short period of time. Peter sees, but he does not yet see clearly. Peter rightly confesses Jesus as the Christ, as the anointed one sent by God. Yet in the very next passage, we learn that for all that Peter and the disciples understand about Jesus, they still don't see Jesus in the clearest of lights. Just like it was with the blind man. Further illumination must take place, you see, for Peter to rightfully understand Jesus, not only as the Messiah, but as the Messiah who must suffer, be put to death, and rise again. And praise God that in Peter's case, further illumination does occur within Peter's heart. Which is why in 1 Peter 5, Peter can exhort the elders as a fellow elder and as a witness to the sufferings of Christ. No longer does Peter rebuke the notion of Jesus' suffering, but he commends it in his epistles. And this lack of understanding about the nature of Jesus' mission and what kind of Messiah Jesus is... As I said earlier, it isn't just something the disciples struggled with back then, but it is something that we struggle with to today. And I think something that helps make this point a little clearer is to notice that in our text here, this blind man was not always blind. He wasn't like the man born blind. Well, how do we know that? Well, he knows what a tree looks like. He said he sees men, but they look like trees. If he had never seen a tree before, how would he know how to distinguish a tree from a flower and the like? And I don't want to read too much into this, but the fact that we are led to believe that he could see before uh, leads us to believe that we need to understand this miracle as teaching the disciples and us about how in this life we can understand Jesus, while at the same time being blind to aspects of his work that God still wants us to see in our daily lives. I'm not talking about doctrine necessarily here. I'm not saying that at times we don't understand Jesus's two natures, or the virgin birth, or his resurrection or ascension or something like that. No, indeed we need to know those vital things biblical truths. Rather, I'm saying here that Jesus's ministry, as he teaches time and again in the Gospels, demands a certain kind of living for the believer, precisely because we serve a Messiah who went willing to su- who went willingly to the cross to suffer and to die unjustly for the sins of an undeserving people such as you and I. And I, be, I believe we begin to see this when we look at Jesus' response to Peter in verse 33. Jesus rebukes Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. And he follows that up with, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You see, mixed into Peter and the disciples' confession of Jesus as the Christ, as the anointed one, was the earthly-minded notion that the Messiah was going to triumph in a glorious way that perhaps the messiah jesus was going to take over the roman empire make headlines and be the next big thing or something like that and running completely counter to this is the notion that the messiah would not desire nor get celebrity treatment rather he would get criminal unjust treatment and die alongside common criminals However, people wanted Jesus to take Jerusalem by storm. Yet the wisdom of God in Christ, brothers and sisters, confounds the wise. And thus the message of the cross, Jesus' mission, is a stumbling block. It is folly to the world because it savors of failure. It savors of weakness. It savors of insignificance. But as disciples of Christ... We are those called to glory in the cross, as we sang earlier, and to have it form our way of life. The earliest Christians were known as the people of the way. And that way was a cruciform way. It was a living sacrifice way. It was a group of people grateful for redemption accomplished and striving after redemption applied. Listen again to the words of the Apostle Peter, this time in 1 Peter two nineteen and 21. Peter says this, For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. This morning, then, it is appropriate for us to examine ourselves in light of this and ask ourselves what does it mean to be a disciple of a Messiah who suffered? What does it mean to serve a Savior who was not hip nor cool, but who was mocked and put to death? What does it mean for you that you follow one who laid down his rights as the Son of God for the sake of others and gave his life as a ransom? Well, by the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us, it should cause us to examine ourselves. And to ask ourselves, perhaps, how are we laying down our rights and ourselves for the sake of others? You know, we live in such a self-absorbed world Where we are told that life is all about you. It's all about taking care of yourself. It's all about taking care of number one. And we can buy into that myth. That we are more important or significant than we actually are. But friends, the cross exposes that lie. And at the cross we see that Jesus, the one who could have asserted his just rights and his just entitlements laid them all down for you and for me. And in saving us in this way, he consequently showed us that life under the sun for the Christian will be a cruciform life, a life of the cross, a life of joyfully bearing wrongs suffered, and freely forgiving, even when forgiveness is not returned. It is a life of taking the low road, so that others might be blessed. It is a life, perhaps, that seeks downward mobility in a world of upward mobility. As Christ says in verse 35, whoever would save his life will lose it. That's a promise. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. Another glorious promise. Brothers and sisters, the world tells you That life is about finding yourself and figuring out what is within you. While the crawl of the cross is all about losing yourself and figuring out what Christ has done outside of you and what he then is doing inside of you by the power of the Spirit. So you see, just like the blind man, we too can be blessed with illumination. We can be blessed with spiritual healing We can be blessed that the Lord has come to us and done a work within us. We can be blessed that he has fully and freely justified us. But at the same time, we must recognize that until Christ returns, we too will have blind spots. For Christ loves you and I so much that he will continue his sanctifying work in our lives until he returns. This is important. For you to realize as seminary students. As students of this seminary where you are so well trained and so well equipped. It's important to remember the cross as you go out in the world to minister in all kinds of different contexts. With different denominations and local congregations. You will be tempted to think of yourself as perhaps one who has gained full sight You will be tempted to try and play the role of the healer instead of knowing your role as the one who has been healed in Christ and who is in the recovery process of sanctification. You will be tempted by the way of glory, even in the church, even in the Reformed Church, believe it or not. And no doubt you will be tempted in so many ways to try and graft glory onto your ministry of the cross. But know this morning, Jesus is the Christ. He is the anointed one of God. He is the Savior who had to suffer and be put to death to liberate us from sin and death so that now in dying and in losing ourselves, we can know the promise that our lives will be found unto him in the age to come. And thus we need not be ashamed in this life when we take the low way. We need not be ashamed when we hold our tongues, when we defer, when we pour forth love which covers a multitude of sins. It will feel like you are dying, but you are being found in Christ our Lord. And so to come full circle this morning, friends, the cross Is not, therefore, one lens among other lenses through which to see Jesus. No, the cross is the ultimate lens by which we see the glory of God and the wisdom of God clearly in Christ Jesus. The cross blocks out all other alternative ways of seeing Jesus and all other alternative ways of following Jesus. At times, following the way of the cross will seem strange, perhaps even wrong. And we will be tempted to rebuke God, as Peter did. Yet it is true that in the light of the cross, the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let us then not be ashamed of the cross this morning, but may it be the only ground of our forgiveness of God And may it be the very light and pattern by which we seek to conform our lives. Amen? Let us pray. Our most wise, righteous, and gracious God, who does all things well as Father, Son, and Spirit, how we praise and thank you for being the God who is pleased to meet his people in the valleys and in the waste places and to breathe new life into them and call them your own. And how we thank you that you are the God who takes the blind and gives them sight and calls them to see with the light of the cross. May we as your disciples in ever greater measure be conformed into the image of your dear son, our great high priest and chief shepherd. And Father, how I pray that you would continue to do your work here at Westminster to train students in both head and heart, in doctrine and in life, in faith and practice, to be faithful stewards and servants of our risen and ascended Lord Jesus. And Father, may you bless us the rest of this day in Christ, pardon our sins always, pour out abundant supplies of sanctifying grace, and receive our thanks in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.